This is the Alpaca Podcast for all things alpaca. If you're an owner, a soon-to-be owner, a want-to-be owner, or are just alpaca mad or love the fleece, welcome to the Alpaca Tribe. I'm Steve Hetherington. Steve here, and welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 100 of the Alpaca Tribe, the podcast for alpaca people. 100 episodes feel significant and gets you to reflecting, especially as Thanksgiving is being celebrated in the US. To our friends from there, I hope you're able to celebrate it in a meaningful way, even if it's not your normal. There's so much wrong in the world, it's helpful to refocus on what we are thankful for. Today, we give thanks. Firstly, thanks to you, my listeners. I'm grateful to you for having travelled with me on this Alpaca Tribe journey. Whether this is your 100th episode or your first, thank you for being here. It means so much. To get us started, here's a recent memory, and my thankfulness for the valley where we live. A bright, sunny autumn morning. The lake is full. Less brown than I expected. We had a lot of rain in through the last day or so. But it's uh, full and flowing. You can hear it in the background going down into the tunnel, the takeoff point from what used to be the reservoir. And the birds are singing and the sun is shining. It's a gorgeous day. The wind isn't too strong, but it's a little breezy. Wet underground, underfoot, rather. Probably underground as well, but uh, a bit squelchy in places. The alpacas are happily out grazing, but looking suitably grey. Sort of damp, dirty, Welsh grey. But uh, they'll get there. Oh, this morning, that was funny. There was a couple of rabbits suddenly disappeared. Uh, They heard me coming, I think. And they... They went scampering and the alpacas just stood and stared at them. What are they? What are they doing in our field? It's really funny. They'll get used to them. There's a pair of them, actually, which is interesting. We've only ever seen the odd one. But there's a definite pair there, so I don't know whether we can have a lot more rabbits. We've seen them in the garden, the bottom of the drive by the house. And uh, the odd place. They're normally further down the valley next to the incoming road. I think it's just the last lack of traffic that we've been having so they're a bit more in and out but there we go I'm also thankful for my many guests who gave of themselves and their time so generously let's hear from them
Oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to work, is it? How about one at a time? Here are some of my reflections on the good bits from the last 100. There were more, but there's just not enough time. Enjoy. Fleece and fibre, the product of alpacas, takes centre stage, followed by the joy of getting started and how to understand what goes on in an alpaca's head. And a mix of other things too. One day I was like, oh, I wonder if they have any fleece. So I think I contacted you and then that's how I started getting into alpaca fleece. And then bought a drop spindle and started doing hand spinning. I didn't really know what I was doing, but just looking at videos on YouTube and just trying it out. (laughs) (laughs) And then just really fell in love with making my own yarn and um and then got into weaving as well using the yarn to weave with and and dyeing later on so and what was it that inspired you to to try the alpaca i can say that definitely it's unique and uh i did a research and uh it was funny because i didn't thought about jewelry i just uh, made some toys and uh scarves and gloves etc And I thought, okay, I want to buy earrings for myself. And I started looking for something and I couldn't find anything. I found only necklaces with felted balls and I thought, no, it's not for me. And uh, Mm. I'm really modest, of course, but I thought... I could make better jewelry. I could make something better, something more interesting and something for myself and for other people. So then I was started thinking about jewelry and because I had my skills, I uh, tried everything what uh, worked the best with alpaca fiber, with right. alpaca yarn uh, and uh, definitely uh, Kyumihimo uh, technique and uh, needle felting are my favourite ones. It's it's quite nice to work in in woven because you can be slightly more creative with colours and patterns as right. well. Yeah. Um, but knitwear sells well, so lots of people in the winter want a cosy hat or a cosy scarf. Absolutely. So, um, that does quite well for us in the winter. So we, I wanted something that could progress into the summer months as well. So something that you could perhaps pop on if it's it's chillier in the in the summer in the evening as right. well. Yeah, um, yeah. They certainly I, do I really feel like the woven stuff has pushed the brand forward in a way because it it's it's a nice way to showcase textiles. Researching different places I could have things processed, who my customer might be, mm. uh, what I can have made. And every year I learn more and more about fiber and alpacas and who wants to buy the product. And it, everything changes all the time. Yes. And there's, there's new information that comes out every couple of months. And it's just keeping up with with the different different processing needs um, and, and what can be created from from alpaca fiber it's it's an interesting industry to be part of i think so i think the eco ethical sustainable market is certainly growing um especially since um the issues with keeping everything plastic free Mm. um so alpaca fiber natural fibers are 100 percent plastic free um so people really love the fact that they know it's eco-friendly it comes from an ethical source so people are really 
keyed up and clued in now to the way people treat their animals and the way farming is is potentially ruining the planet. But there are people out there who do really care for their animals. There's some amazing people in the alpaca community and so helpful and so willing to share their knowledge. And I'm just so grateful that I've met people that are so nice and are not seeing me as anything less than just wanting to use the fleece because it's just got such incredible properties. And if you were thinking about helping point somebody in the right direction, if somebody was thinking of doing a bit more with their own fleece or, or, mm. or getting into to things, what would be the key kind of bits of advice you would give of how to get, I, st- get started? I think decide on an end product before anything else. What do you what do you want from your fibre? Do you want to sell the yarn to, to knitters or do you want an end product? Do you want a scarf, uh, a hat, a shawl, a bed throw? Do you want to make pillows, that sort of thing? Um, and then work backwards rather than going straight to a mill and having it spun, not knowing what you want made up. Right. I think is is probably the way to go. Work backwards. And what you want that product for, do you want to wear it yourself? Is it just for personal use? Is it for a friend? Is it to sell to the public and who your customer might be? I've always been a bit crafty, but never really good at anything in particular. Like I'm a bit sporty, but no, not outstanding in anything. And then felting, it just one of those things that clicked. It's so it's so simple, the technique, but so versatile. Um, all you need is, is imagination. But it's, it's, a, it's a forgiving craft. It allows you to, to play. And it, it really does take you somewhere else because it's so tactile and sensual that you lose yourself completely. And the best thing about it is, is you can start and finish an entire project in one day. It's not like knitting or crochet or spinning where it takes weeks or, me, in my case, years. But I do natural dyes, so these are all plant dyes. Um, and the tones and the quality of the colour with natural dyes is entirely different. Yes. So I think people are sort of drawn in by the softer colours. Um, Actually, you can see that. Where we're, where we're standing yeah, here, and we've, you... got, we've got... There's some beautiful, gentle colours um, going all the way from, from pretty rose... Delicate roses, delicate, delicate blues. Um, so that once they were in the sheds here, they were nice and dry and they could spend all day doing what they love. And that's handling fleece, shopping for wool and chatting to the traders that are here. I think I've been very lucky. Mm. Going to the shows have been very successful. You've got to put a lot of hard work in to think about what your customers would want. Lots of people like fluffy alpacas, but not lots of people can't knit. So how do you make... Right. So I make some products for the people that can't knit, that can't crochet, yeah. um, that can't weave... It's a pleasant hobby for me to be able to, to do that because if you're a knitter or a crochet, you'll get to the point where you can't knit or crochet enough stuff for yourself. In a variety of different colours, um, as well as then a selection of raw alpaca fleece that I've washed, picked through, um, and it's there in the brown bags ready for customers to dive their hands in, have a good old squidge, um, and get to feel how soft and delightful it is. While we've um, been here, we've, I've actually seen people just go and put their hands in and yes. touch it. And, yeah. and that's something that coming to a show like this 
gives people that opportunity, doesn't it? Because if they're buying online, they can't feel it. They can't feel just how no. amazing Alpaca Fleece is. Well, that's exactly it, really. And that's why I decided to display it as I have done in the brown paper bags so that customers could put their hands in and have a little feel. They know what they're buying. They know and they, can, they, they know what they want. Um, and it's really important for me that I try and give customers what they want. Um, and that's about us having a bit of variety on the stall, helping customers. Gone ahead and felt the fleece. And they said, look, I've spun with wool, with sheep's wool. You know, what's the difference then? Is alpaca more difficult to spin with? How would you suggest? What would you do? You know, and, and that's that conversation bit that you get on a show like today where you can chat with people. They talk to you about what their intentions are um, and you can help support them then. Knowing where their fibre came from, whether it's a ball of yarn that's individually labelled up from each alpaca or whether it's the fibre, they want to know where it's come from, how it's, how it's been handled or did it get where it is today. And I think, you know, for me, I think that's that traceability bit where you, I don't know, you're keeping it as natural as possible, um, but, you are, but you are adding value to what you're producing. What I'm looking at in terms of the yarns is incredibly fine. But as I say to people, that's really down to the fibre. Because it's fine and silky, it will automatically spin into a fine yarn. And I personally, I think that makes um, the most of the fleece. So it's been a huge learning curve. <laughs> yeah. And we're still moving on and learning and developing what we do. I don't know what you've been doing lately, but we're in the middle of matings. Multiple matings are so loud. Well, it caused my thoughts to drift to where all this began. We started over 11 years ago with five pregnant females. I've talked before about this, but not about the process of choosing your alpacas. Where you can get to is determined by where you start. Are you looking for fibre or breeding stock, showing or just pets in the field? What's your focus going to be? Or are you going to try to keep your options as open as possible? You need to make your investment wisely, but cheapest isn't always best. Another thing to bear in mind is that you're not buying boxes off a shelf. Choosing carefully both your animals and who you buy your alpacas from can make all the difference. You will need access to support and knowledge, especially in the early days, as you learn what is normal, both for alpacas in general, and this group of individual alpacas in particular. When you buy your animals, you should also be thinking you're buying access to the breeders for that support. Is it somebody you can work with? Do they know what is needed? From our experience, three is the best minimum number for a herd. We've talked before about the kind of space and facilities they are going to need. Make life easy for yourself and do your homework, take your time and make the preparations. It's really useful to be having a network of people that you can go back and ask sure. questions. We ended up with a black, a brown, two light fawns and a true white. A good mix of colour in the field and a range of genetics to feel confident about potential future offspring. Of course, you never know quite what will arrive and we've had our share of surprises over the years. But we have been delighted with our original choice and have so enjoyed how they have added to our lives here in the valley. We looked at a good spread of colour, bloodlines, and to make the money stretch a bit further, a mix of quality too. We began with five pregnant females. We knew we wanted to breed, and knew we wanted to have a reasonable sized herd. 
We'd also settled in advance that we could increase the land available to us to cope with future numbers. Although I know it's not always easy for everyone to be able to do that. that that's part of the thing. So when we got them, the breeders told us just to spend time sitting, you know, put a couple of chairs in the catch mm. pen. So we made oh, a huge... Such good advice. Yeah. Yes. We made a big catch pen, you know, originally. Um, and we would just sit down and put a bucket of um, lucerne for them to come and eat. And that's how they got used to us. And we got used to them as well. Yeah. Actually, this is, this is interesting. It, it takes me about four weeks to train, train an animal for trekking. It takes me about six weeks to train uh, a trek buddy. <laughs> so it take, take, takes me longer to train the people than it does the animals. <laughs> it's a business I love and I enjoy. And I don't think, you know, I don't feel I'm working. Um, and I, I, I've identified, yeah. when I started out, I had identified about 30 different income streams from alpacas. Now I'm up well over 50 different income streams that you can generate from alpacas. And, um, but if you look at the three, for me, the three primary ones would be the agritourism. Uh, so agritourism, breeding, and then the fiber. So they're, they're the three main income streams that we see at the moment. So then you had the few there and the, the numbers grew. And what, what's been the main focus that you've had? It's been the fleece for me too. Yes. Yeah, so when we were buying alpacas, the appeal was I could, you know, use that fleece to knit. And I really like that because I love knitting. Now I, absolutely. And on the website, there's that lovely, and I'm assuming it's you, <laughs> sat, sat knitting at the top of the of the, yes. of the page, there's somebody simply sitting there knitting, which is just lovely. That's the me. in the background, yeah. in the shade. Yes, <laughs> yes. But I just, I love knitting. It's very peaceful. Um, mm. I think all the crafts are very peaceful. And I love the idea of using my own animal's fleece to knit. That's what I've been doing. Obviously, I can't do it full time. You know, I wish I could do it full time, but I still have a job. So knitting is just evenings, weekends, you know, just when I can find time. Something that I noticed and I thought I'm going to try this is actually taking back the fleece or the yarn or the the piece that I'm knitting back to the paddock with the alpacas and it's fascinating. Mm. So I've taken a couple of um, things that I've knitted like scarves or um, a poncho Mm. and I put it with the alpaca that the fleece came from and they sniff it. And mm. it's almost like I know it's been, you know, processed and washed, yeah. but I wonder if they know it's from them. You've been getting used to things and things are starting to – because how long have you had them? Just a matter of so, a couple of months? Yeah, about, yeah about, about a month or so. Now, right, yeah. so very early days. So, so not long. Yes, very early. Still, we're, we're still, still lots to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and do you feel like there's a biggest challenge you're facing with them at the moment? Um. I think just kind of getting their their trust to get into your routine. It seems that they um, like a lot of animals. They like a routine, so um, we kind of have gotten to the point now where uh, you know when they know when I'm coming out to feed them, they, they all gather up and pop on over to the fence and 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 wait for me to come over. And um, so I I don't know that there's a a, a big challenge yet. I think um, I think. Catching them is going to be um, somewhat, somewhat of a challenge on a couple of them. Um, I know that we had a lot of fun trying to wrangle them to to bring them home. So so the, I think they, they had not been 
handled or interacted much with where where they were. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I have a feeling that kind of you know uh, process, especially when we come up to to shearing and and yeah. uh, I think it, you're right about routines that they they yeah. get used to, and when they're used to what you're doing, where where you're moving them to, they they they're more relaxed. We have people come and visit the alpacas oh. here, um, and there's a car park, and and the alpacas, oh, car in the car park, and they they come. I think, oh, they, you know. I think they're just checking out, see whether they left the keys in there, and if they, they find a way. They can take a drive. Anyway, get, getting in there and take the car because they come out and they really check out the vehicle and they check out the windows and the and the mirrors. They check themselves out That's in the mirrors. So they actually look at themselves, and yeah, they they got that that kind of interaction. And for me, this first experience just meant ultimate magnetism, ultimate positivity. Watching someone turn around the corner and maybe they're worrying about, you know, X or homework, whatever it was, and just watching their expression change illuminated this totally different part of my brain of seeing the power that this animal has, not in just the fiber, which I'd spent, you know, like years really working with down in Peru and developing these new fabrics, but its essence alone and the power of it to really change where people are at in their own isolation of themselves in their own world and bring them out of that to a whole another kind of connection with an animal. You mentioned Paca. Now we're not talking about alpaca. We're talking about Paca, which is the trading name of, of your business. Yes, sir. And the stuff, the stuff that you've been doing, um, you went down to Peru and spent some time down, down there. When, when was that? Is that a while back? It was originally a year I took to travel through South America and I was coming from Bolivia, um, over to the West Coast, and of course, you go through the Andes Mountains, which is where the Quechua people are. And I bought this handwoven sweater, come to find out it was made of alpaca from this local artisan. And I just remember being blown away like, what is this? It's so soft, it's so light. And the rest of my trip, like I would use it as a pillow on an overnight bus, I would use it in the desert, I would use it on the beach, and, the, and it worked in every environment, which was just like amazing. And then I got back to the U.S. and every time I wore it, people always came up and they wanted to know where it came from or like where they could get one even. Got people coming and stroking you. <laughs> like I, I'm one of these alpacas. So, yeah. which is hilarious because it's like it's 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 such a great way to build the, that same magnetism organically of like it just yeah. looks different. So, yeah. So what's the range of uh, products you, you're doing? You Obviously, the latest thing is the, the joggers. But with these joggers, we have fully outfitted someone head to toe, which I'm very proud of. So wow. like, yeah. So the, from the socks with bam, blend with bamboo to the new joggers with the breathe by pack of fabric to all of the different sweaters we make each woman hand signs on the inside of the, the sweater, her signature is theirs, yeah. which is really Fantastic. cool. And then uh, some beanies too. So, so. yeah. And balance, uh, you know, when I'm teaching a clinic, the first time that I use balance is probably in the first 20 minutes that I'm talking. And I warn people that in the rest of the two or three or four days that they're going to be with me, they're going to hear me harp on balance hundreds of times. Mm. Balance is the key to everything working with animals. Dogs, veterinarians need to know about it. Riders need to know about it. An animal that is standing in their natural balance is an animal who you have the best shot that they feel safe and that they're able to think. If they're out of balance physically, they're not in balance mentally, they're not in balance emotionally, and it makes it harder to work with them. And teaching somebody the lightness that is required to help an animal find their balance and to keep it 
the secret to it all. And it is the most elusive thing to get. Once you get it, you've got it from that point on. But finding it is is hard. Takes takes commitment. Yeah, it does. It does indeed. And I think that's one of the things that you know you get started and, and you've got to keep going with it and keep working. Each animal is dif- different and individual, but the principles will still work. They can still be applied in a variety of ways and levels, which you can work with any animal, I think. Yeah. Uh, but some will need more work. Yeah. But but the other the other part of this that's really uh, the part that really hooked me in and, and hooks a lot of people in is that when I go to a clinic and I'm teaching, I've never seen these animals before in my life. I don't go out there at night before the clinic starts and work with them all. <laughs> and people are, I think the reason I'm still doing this 40 years later is that they are absolutely amazed that I can walk into a pen with an animal that I've never met before and get them to trust me quicker than they would the person they're living with for maybe 10 years. And the reason is everything that I do shows them very quickly that they can feel safe with me. And it's like a drug for me. I, I, I just love being able to go in and see the, it's almost a confused look on their face. Like, you're kidding me, really? I can do this? And, uh, and they, sometimes... You speak the language. Exactly. And sometimes the animals that are the most difficult, the ones that fight the hardest and the ones that, are, that have been brought to a clinic or described to me as being the most intractable, the most difficult animals, as soon as you can show them that it's that the environment that they're in is safe, they change like you just flipped a light switch. It's remarkable. New owners or people who are less experienced with their animals. We talked about some of the principles and the pillars. Where, where would you start as a new owner? What's, what's the, what are the things that you would need to have in order to do work with the animals? And also what would be the first things you think would be good for people to be thinking about doing? Uh, before they come on the course, this is the problem. The the detailed information you get from the course and, and understanding uh, exactly what's involved, but there are other things that people can be doing to move to, to a more positive position, at least. Well, I think that the book that I wrote, it's, uh, it's coming on 20 years now. The book that I wrote 20 years ago is called The Camelot Companion, and it's 400 pages. It was like my opus when I wrote it. And I think that's a good place to start because it will, it describes the shift that has to happen in your thinking about safety and, and, you know, setup and how do you create this safe space that you can bring your animal into. So I think the, the Camel and Companion is always a really good place to start. I love it when people come to clinics. I do usually on a, in a normal year, I would do somewhere between 10 and 12 clinics a year or, you know, sometimes a few less, but, um, and people generally, when I do a clinic, I have about 50% of the people that are coming from, from driving distance and about 50% of the people fly in. Um, Mm. I have been very impressed with people who have come to clinics, having taken the online courses, the the online courses, um, are, are video lessons. And it's, it's kind of like coming to a clinic only you don't get the hands-on part of it. Um, so I've been very impressed with, with how well people do the work at a clinic when they, uh, when they go in with the animals and I can watch them having taken an online course. So I feel very, I feel very good about that. Um, 
And then uh, I have people that have studied with me for a long time. They're called Camelot Dynamics Consultants. And um, I have other people that have been to studying with me for quite a long time and teach workshops that include Camelot Dynamics as part of what they teach. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of ways to get, you know, to get the information. So, so in pra- practical terms, um, you talk about a catch pen. So we, we're talking about hurdles, which are not sheep hurdles because they're too small, too too low, but creating a catch pen and um, being able to work with the animal in a in a smaller but but a, a safe space. Yeah. Now my my favorite size is nine feet. I'm not sure what that is in meters, um, but nine feet square, five feet high. That's that's like the gold standard. But when I go to do clinics, I might be in something that's eight by eight, which is another common size pen. Uh, ten by ten, I work in a ten by ten pen. It's it's the 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 nine foot is like a Goldilocks, you know. It's just right, and it also is just right for both llamas and alpacas. The other thing that's important once you have a catch pen is being able to reasonably get your animal into it without having to create a drama about that. So. A small, a sort of adjacent, small paddock that you get your animals into first, and then from there into the catch pen is usually the best system. And that is absolutely key. You cannot do what I teach unless you have a safe, small area to work in and you can get your animal into it without scaring the bejesus out of them. The tools, the, the tool, the wand and the rope, which is the wand is about four feet long and it has a little clip on the end of it and I can push a rope into it. And I use that as a way of being able to connect with the animal without having to trap them in a corner. I use that wand and rope as a way of allowing the animal to move within the confines of the pen and to get uh, a rope around their neck so I can use it for balance, all without ever getting within arm's length because that would scare them. And the idea is that I want to make a connection with them that doesn't scare them to start with. As we finish this 100th episode, let me just say again, thank you. Thank you for being here and that in some ways, large and small, you want to have alpacas in your life. Go well, stay safe, and if you can, go spend some time with an alpaca. Hope to see you again soon. This is the Alpaca Tribe, and I'm Steve Hetherington. Have a great day.